and we are back on the boots on the ground pod alongside Ben Conroy. I am Essex Thayer. And Ben, before we get into the, the meat of our podcast this evening, discussing the win over Pitt and getting ready for Duke on Saturday, we are really excited to welcome Lucas Harkins, a college basketball writer at Heat Check CBB, as well as being recognized as one of the best bracketologists out there. Lucas joins us today to discuss what goes into making a bracket, where Wake Forest stands, and what is left to do for the Demon Deacons to dance on Selection Sunday. Welcome, Lucas. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we'll we'll kind of just get into brackets in general to start with, because Ben and I, we, we love looking at bracketology. I feel like our noses are in that all the time, but obviously we are not bracketologists ourselves. Um, so when you're putting together these brackets, what are kind of the main things you look for? Are there aspects of the metrics, the resumes that you value more than others? Yeah, well, I think the thing that's important to note is what's on the team sheet, first and foremost, uh, and especially when you come to metrics, because there's so many metrics these days across college basketball sites that, that it's that while they can be used by the committee, there's only a select few that actually are on the team sheet. Um, obviously, the net is discussed as frequently as any and is on there. Uh, and then there's a set of resume metrics and a set of quality metrics. So your resume metrics are your KPI and strength of record or SOR. Um, and then quality metrics are your Ken Palm and BPI um, that are on. And I think it's important to distinguish the difference between those two, especially as um, when you look at how the committee builds their own bracket. Uh, that's a selection first, followed by seeding. So they select their teams first and then seed. Um, and, and so I think when you look at it from that perspective, you look at the KPI and strength of record, those resume metrics um, play a little bit more of a factor, at least on paper, they would play a little bit more of a factor in selection for the field. Um, whereas those quality metrics uh, of which wake is in great position, um, it, do, it does a little bit more for seating positioning than anything. Uh, so those are the metrics that are on the, on the team sheet. And then we have the quadrant records, uh, which are a little bit different based on location of neutral home versus away, but quad one, quad two, quad three, and quad four. Um, and something you'll hear discussed fairly commonly is quad one A, um, which is games against the upper half of quad one. So that's like a home game against the net top 15 rather than a quad one game being a home game against the net top 30. Um, and, and from there, it's building out. Um, it, it's building out, comparing team for team, comparing, putting things into different pods where they belong, doing some comparisons. Um, across those metrics and across their quality wins uh, and seeing some things that maybe stand out as differentials. So, so a team's, so sometimes it's notable when a team has a, has a lower non-conference strength of schedule than another or worse road record than another. Um, sometimes it's important to take into account those teams a la Mississippi state that's been poor on the road, but has done really well in neutral site games um, in terms of what they've done away from their home building, even if it's not in a true road environment. Um, and trying to put all of that together uh, and piece together 68 teams that deserve to be in the field next month. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially that you bring up, you know, the the committee selects and then seeds. I think that's something that doesn't get discussed a ton or that people forget about. It's that the pool of teams is selected and then the seeding takes place after that. So the primary thing that's being focused on is, is this team a tournament team based on all of the things that you just described to us, which are very insightful. So I want to shift from that question to a little bit of focus on the ACC Obviously, we've spent a ton of time on this podcast discussing sort of the national perception of the ACC, where it stacks and ranks up against other conferences. There's a lot of, you know, national debate about this. Some people think, you know, the conference is as low as two or three bids. Some say it's between four to six. And then there's just sort of all these arguments about how many bids the ACC will get, you know, come Selection Sunday. 
So what are your thoughts on the tournament pedigree of the conference as a whole? I think in your most recent bracketology predictions, you had four bids going to the ACC. So, you know, when you're at, when you're evaluating these ACC teams, what are some things that come to mind? How do they stack up against other conferences? Maybe like the Mountain West, which has been one that the ACC is often, you know, compared to in terms of, you know, amount of projected bids, strength of teams, things like that. Yeah, I think for one, Clemson has made it very clear it will not be a two-bid league. Um, <laughs> Clemson's made its push. They have two of the best road wins in the country at Alabama um, and at North Carolina. That's a team that's not going to miss the field. I think they've played their way up towards a five or a six seed. I don't think they're in any danger of slipping out. And obviously, it, including North Carolina and Duke in there, those are three teams that I feel really comfortable about being in the tournament and also really comfortable about their seeding. Like North Carolina is going to be a one or a two seed. Duke's probably going to be a protected seed in the top four. Uh, and Clemson's in that mix too. If not, if not, they're going to be around the five or six to me. Uh, and then it is a pool after that. Uh, if you want to get to the, the Virginia group and, and Wake Forest, and then it's a little bit more of a step down, I think, towards a pit and a Virginia Tech who are still in the mix. I, I think there's a possibility both Virginia and, and Wake Forest get in the field. Obviously, Virginia is in a better position right now, um, but they have a tough upcoming schedule. And, and there's some things there that are a little bit shaky in Virginia's resume. I, I think the ACC will finish with four bids. Um, but I, but as you mentioned, that does come down to a bit, a league like the Mountain West, which has so many teams in the bubble um, with, with a Nevada, Boise State, and New Mexico. That's three teams that are all three going to get in the field is a reasonable question, especially as we come down the stretch here. New Mexico especially has a really tough finishing group. Uh, and, and Boise State, I believe, finishes their last two against Colorado State and San Diego State. Um, at least the finale is definitely against San Diego State. Uh, they've got a tough schedule to finish with, too. I, I, it's, I think they're two pretty comparable leagues in terms of bids. But the difference is, is the Mountain West has gamed bids tremendously well by not having anyone awesome. <laughs> like San Diego State's a really good basketball team. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're a four or five seed. They're a really good team. Um, and, and so is Colorado State, and so is Utah State, but none of them are North Carolina, and they also aren't Duke in terms of seeding. So those are wins that are great, but no one's really picking off those teams. No one's really picking off North Carolina in the ACC, and therefore North Carolina stayed up towards the top, whereas teams have beaten San Diego State. They've beaten Colorado State. They've beaten Utah State, and that's allowed these teams that would maybe be fringe bubble teams like a Virginia Tech or a, or a or a pit in, in the ACC to, to play in the way into the field because they have those better opportunities for what are pretty darn good wins uh, in the Mountain West. Wake Forest, as you said earlier, is kind of that metric starling. Like they have really, really strong metrics, but a resume that lags behind. Just one quad one win right now, and it's a little bit shaky with Florida. As of now, they seem to be the kind of team that has – bracketologists with a bunch of mixed feelings. What makes the Deeks kind of an odd case of sorts right now for, for a lot of bracketologists? Yeah. Well, for one, I think as you compare resume to quality metrics, in theory, the more games you play, the more those would even out, right? Like in theory, if you're going to, if your quality metrics predict, you're going to do this, eventually your results metrics will prove that you're, so and so good. Um, and that hasn't really been the case for a team like Wake Forest. And Wake Forest isn't alone in that either. St. Mary's, Gonzaga, um, and on the opposite spectrum, South Carolina and, and Ole Miss are the opposite in terms of having great resume metrics and poor quality metrics. 
So like you would expect Wake Forest to have a better resume than it does, but but it doesn't at this point. Uh, so that makes that makes them extremely difficult to evaluate, especially when you're going to run them up against a team like an Ole Miss on the bubble. Both teams really close. Do you favor a team that quality metrics indicate is way better? I mean, there's Ken Palm BPI would indicate that predictive quality metrics wakes a much better team than Ole Miss, but the resume metrics show that Ole Miss deserves to be in the field more. Uh, and I think that that makes it a really challenging discussion and one that I do not envy the committee for having to make, uh, but also with metrics that are so far apart right now um, and still having a closing schedule, like it, it, it creates an opportunity where Wake could really play its way into great positioning still, um, but also it's a team that could really slide. If the, if, the, if the quality metrics slide towards where the resume is right now, they're not going to make the tournament. But if the opposite happens, obviously it's going to be a group that's not only going to make the field, but one that probably could play its way off the bubble pretty quickly if it brings those resume metrics up into the 30s. Yeah, definitely. That's something we talk about a lot is sort of the the, the human element living up to what the numbers are saying about Wake Forest, which is, you know, a lot of dominant wins, the ability to put a lot of points on the board, a team that absolutely, you know, has the pieces to play its way into this tournament field, like you said, but sort of still waiting for those couple of you know, eye-catching wins that sort of take any doubt off the table. So yesterday, you know, I mentioned your your most recent bracketology predict- predictions that came out. You had Wake as one of your first four out. So right on the wrong side of the bubble, sort of with, as we've been discussing here. Our first question is, was this before the Pitt game or after Wake's 33-point victory over Pitt? And then, you know, having factored all of that in, Wake wins 98 or 91-58 over Pitt at home. Would you have the Deeks in the tournament should the season end today? Uh, it was before. Uh, for starters, it's before that win over Pitt. Um, I haven't done a refresh um, since then, and I won't do a refresh until tomorrow night. But I think there's a decent chance that they would be in the field right now. Um, if you look at teams that, that have suffered defeats you know, since then, uh, Butler loses a game at Villanova, Texas A&M loses at home um, to Arkansas, a team that I had ahead of Wake Forest in the first four out was Cincinnati. They just lost just prior to us getting on here tonight. Um, I think Villanova is probably still going to be a touch ahead of Wake Forest. So it's a matter of if both those teams are going to get in um, like a game tonight that could mix it up. Xavier's currently playing Providence. Um, that's one that could change things around. Ole Miss gets Mississippi state tonight. Like there's, there's so many games that are still juggling around um, this evening. That makes it difficult to say if they would be in the field or not. I still think it's really difficult to make an argument Um like it's very difficult to argue against the fact that Wake only has one quad one win and it's against net 29 at home. Um, that's Florida just dropping two spots away from being outside of quadrant one. And it's really hard to get in with, with no quadrant one wins. Uh, so I think it, it's that conversation is whether if Florida is enough to bolster it up. Uh, so I would think probably right around, right. I think they've moved up since Tuesday, obviously as a result of the win. Uh, but also it does it does nothing in terms of proving to the committee that Wake can play away from home, which, which is another big thing that Wake needs to be able to do down the stretch. Like, I don't think it's been any secret um, that Wake's been really good at, at home this year. Uh, it's a 33 at, at home against Pitt. They got 29 against um, against Syracuse. Obviously the blowout over Louisville, another blowout over Virginia. Like they've had great – the metric boosting wins have been at home. Um, and, and as they say, the NCAA tournament isn't played at home. So it is, if you cannot prove – um, if they're not able to prove that they can play away from home and there's still two opportunities there, uh, but only one of them really means anything. I don't think the committee is going to be swayed by at Notre Dame much, uh, but at Virginia Tech, not only a road opportunity, but it's a quad one road opportunity. 
uh, one of three remaining quad one games for Wake on the schedule, which could really help fix that hole in the gap, that hole in the resume. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of a, a few points on that. We were actually joking the last night uh, when Wake Forest was beating down Pitt that if somehow the tournament committee decided that the NCAA tournament was going to be played in Winston-Salem this season, Wake Forest might just be a Final Four team. Um, just how they yeah, they'd, have a, they'd, have a, they'd have a really, really tough battle with Nebraska in the regional final. Yeah, <laughs> it would. But um, yeah, you're. I mean, you're right. the The road, the road games have have certainly been kind of a a tough part uh, of Wake Forest season, and, and certainly kind of the downturn of the resume. On the other side of that, the opportunities, as you said, are still there. Specifically, that away one. I'm I'm, I'm with you on Notre Dame. I think that is a low it's a must win game yeah i mean it's it's a must win and it's a high risk low reward type game for wake forest you lose that game you're you're on life support probably you might yeah. be dead um and you win and nothing happens but virginia tech is that opportunity i agree it's a quad one and i think that's a huge difference for wake force is those kind of quad ones you have duke at home which is going to be a bona fide quad one and then clemson which might hang around we'll see but the the opportunities are certainly there as i i think you said to in my mind, make a change, make a play too. Um, but what is Wake Forest when we talk about all those opportunities? What do the Deeks need to do in your mind to ensure a bid to the dance? Like, what do you think it'll take? Is it do they need that possibly to go four and one? Do they need to take down Duke on Saturday? It, what? How do you envision Wake Forest kind of ensuring that they're that they're going dancing for the first time since 2017? Yeah, you know, I think it's. I'll say on the first part, I think it's going to be really hard to take them out of consideration if they beat Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. Like, I think even going two and three and winning those two games, odds are likely that they blow those teams out because it's what they've done all year. And odds are likely they're going to have great quality metrics coming into um, coming into Selection Summit. And that will be enough to keep them in the conversation, even if I think it's on the outside, but it's something that the committee could make an argument like this is a top 30 team in the country on quality metrics, even though the resume doesn't really stack up to the rest. That's something to, to, to keep in mind. Um, I don't think they would get in the tournament two and three. I certainly don't, but I, and I don't think they would deserve to be either. Um, but those quality metrics are something that's going to keep them on the board. Like just a, they're going to be a team that gets discussed. I think if they're that highly rated still uh, with that said, as much as Notre Dame on the road, doesn't do all that much Georgia tech at home. Doesn't do very much either. Um, I think it's probably going to take four and one to feel in a decent spot. Um, and one of the losses can't be Notre Dame or Georgia Tech. I don't think a win over Duke overshadows either of those. Um, so, so I think four and one is the target. Um, and they're not the only team with that as the target. Like, like I'm a Butler guy. You look at Butler coming down the stretch here as well. They're going to have to go three and one. Like that's what the conversation is for a lot of these teams right on the cut line. And I think we discussed that maybe a bit too much. Like every team has to go three and one, four and one on the stretch. Eventually not many teams are going to do that. And there are more spots available. So maybe that's overstretch. Maybe that's overstepping a bit and saying four and one, that might be a bit much. Um, but I think given where Wake Forest is, two of those four wins aren't going to add anything um, of real substance to a resume that lacks precisely that in terms of substance. And then kind of one one last question, and I know this is putting you on the spot for sure, but it's something we've we've asked a, a few people when they're when they join the pod in, in terms of Wake Forest. Off of what you've seen right now, do, 
do you think Wake Forest is going to make the tournament? I guess I'll, I'll be blunt with it. Like, yeah. do you think Wake Forest is going to make the NCAA tournament? I think so. Like, I think I'm I'm a believer in these. Like, we've seen in recent weeks, we've seen quality metrics be proven to be accurate in a lot of cases. Um, like South Carolina played its way up to a five or a four seed a couple weeks ago and has dropped back to back uh, towards what their quality metrics say they would finish. Um, and I think that we'll probably see some of that with Wake Forest. Like I think, I mean, they're, they're favored in all five closing games on Ken Palm. Like the odds they win for those are, are pretty high um, based on those metrics. And if we are to believe those, then I think that that's a team that probably gets in the field. Uh, it's never going to be easy because like, at max, they're going to finish with four quad one wins, which is going to tie teams like a Providence or a Butler. Um, it will have less quad one wins than Seton Hall. The, the Big East, by the way, is just freaking loaded with teams in the bubble. Um, <laughs> they're very easy examples. Um, so I, I think that that's going to put them in a tough spot is it's going to max out at four quad one wins. Uh, it could only be two, even if they finish four and one, like if Florida were to drop out, um, that puts it in. And you could say, you know, a Clemson team that's 28th also on the verge of kind of dropping out of there. Um, the only surefire quad one games on the on the schedule are at Duke, um, uh, at home against Duke. I mean, and, and at Virginia Tech, who will stay top seventy five, uh, is my belief. Um, as they're at fifty second, that's not going to drop out. Um, so really, you have, there, there's a possibility there's only two surefire quad one games on the entire schedule, and neither of them have been played yet. Uh, so there's nothing that's set in stone as a quad one win that you could for sure count on coming Selection Sunday. That's the downside. Um, but I do think that it's a team that, that has definitely the, the opportunities to get into the field and the quality metrics that back up the fact that they should win a lot of games down the stretch here. It's going to be a, it's only a few games left, but it's going to feel like quite the, the run going forward on the road to March. Lucas Harkins from Heat Check CBV. Thank you hey, so much for joining us. Five games is still a sixth of the season. Believe it or not. Yeah, it, it's been a long, it's been a long season, but you know, I'm sure a lot of teams are hoping hoping it'll get a lot longer. Thanks again for joining us, Lucas. Thanks, Robin. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And that was Lucas Harkins with Heat Check CBB. Finally got a bracketologist on the pod, Ben, and I feel like this was the perfect time to do that after felt like Wake Forest was kind of sliding a little bit. You have the the loss in Durham to Duke. It's all fine and good. Totally understandable. At the same time, a loss in Charlottesville to Virginia. It's kind of all fine and good until you, you see what Virginia has been doing. They're a real up and down team. And also it's just the way that Wake Forest loses the games. But we're beyond that. We're beyond Virginia now. Things have picked back up in, in a large, large way after Wake Forest puts together a drubbing of the Pitt Panthers, a nub, another bubble team. They take them and, and, and win in the Joel 91 to 58. And in doing so, get themselves right back into the conversation. 
Joe Lunardi had them, I believe, as the second team out of the tournament. They're making their way back up. A lot of other bracketologists putting Wake Forest right on the edge. You just heard Lucas earlier say that Wake Forest in his bracketology that'll come out on Thursday might make their way into the field. They are a team that are, is right back into the conversation. They're number 21 in Kempom, number 23 in Torvik, and number 26 in Net. It's pretty pretty darn good. Um, and it's a, it's a team that that got its got its mojo back a little bit. I mean, you shoot 60% from the field, 50% from three-point, and 95% from the free-throw line. Lucy Beres with Wake Forest Athletic Communications Office postgame comes into the, the press room and says that she cannot find evidence that that has ever happened at Wake Forest before, that a team has gone 60, 50, 95. So Wake Forest really had their, their shooting game on. It was a great performance from Boopy Miller. He had 18 points. You have Hunter Salas, who's been good as always, with 17. But the first person I want to touch on when it comes to this game, Ben, and especially as it relates to the Virginia game this past Saturday, is Cam Hildreth. So not to dwell too much on that Virginia game, but Wake Forest down by two with roughly six seconds left on the clock. They don't have a timeout. They inbound the ball, and there's some confusion on that inbound. And Steve Forbes said after the game it was supposed to be Hunter Salas, but Cameron Hildreth takes the ball up, takes one of the toughest shots in basketball with a fadeaway jumper, and it rims out, and Wake Forest loses by two. And in the postgame, Seaforce was pretty blunt about it. He said Cam Hildreth should have never had that ball. He had no business taking the ball up, taking that shot. And it opened up a lot of conversation on Cam Hildreth, who's been ailing with a from a hurt wrist. He's been trying to find a way to, to break back into the game, find his game uh, when dealing with a pretty significant injury. And he looked like a different basketball player against Pitt. He kind of found himself and, and played his his brand of basketball, but the kind of brand of basketball that Wake Forest needs him to play. He had 13 points on just four shots. So he was three or four from the field and the shots he was taking were all kind of ones that were good drives and the the shots were open. So he's not taking long jumpers. He's getting to the rim. And when the look was there, he was taking the shots, but he was distributing the ball a lot. He had five assists. And one of the things that I asked both Cam and coach Forbes after the game was it really was the ball distribution for Cam. It was seeing the court, making that extra pass. His defense is always critical, especially against Pitt when you're playing against Blake Hinson, who scored 41 on Louisville over the weekend and could only muster 10 against Wake Forest on three of 10 shooting. So Cam locks down Blake Hinson and finds himself on offense, getting the the buckets when they're there, but just as much just kind of being a, a cog in the machine. That is the Wake Forest offense and getting the ball moving to the guys who aren't exactly dealing with the same level of injury that he is. So to me, it felt like the perfect response from Cam Hildreth and a sign of what he can be for this team going on for the remainder of the season and exactly what Wake Forest needs him to be for the remainder of the season. Yeah, that was very much so just a handle business game for Cam Hildreth. And first, just a, a few general thoughts on the pit game, With as has been the case with so many Wake Forest home games this season, just really never felt like Pitt had a chance in that game with how well Wake Forest was shooting the ball, how efficiently they were playing on offense. You touched on those, you know, arguably historic shooting percentages that Wake had. And I said at halftime, 
Wake was kind of staring into that familiar abyss of leading, you know, by double digits against Pitt at half. But I just thought that this game felt different in that regard. And the biggest difference, obviously, is the building in which the game was played. Wake has just been essentially so far invincible at home. They really looked it against Pitt. They did everything right. They played efficiently. They played smart. They took care of the ball for the most part. So really just a complete performance from Wake Forest that, and Lucas touched on this, they have these incredibly impressive metrics boosting wins, but all of them have been at home. And you and I have discussed for a while, Essex, what the missing piece is for this Wake Forest team. And it's just to go get one of those impressive wins on the road. And Wake Forest still has some opportunities to do that. They're, you know, the Duke game, like you said, is going to be a bona fide quad one. So obviously getting that win in front of a huge, in front of a what should be a great home crowd come Saturday. I know you and I will both be there. Great opportunity. But then if you go and beat Virginia Tech on the road and handle business against Notre Dame and beat Georgia Tech at home, that is where things can really start to fall into place for this Wake Forest team for building an NCAA tournament resume that the predictive metrics, by the way, assume that they're going to do. Like Lucas told us, Wake is favored in just about every game down the stretch. So the metrics very much expect Wake to rise to the occasion. And but those games still have to be played. So, you know, a lot, a lot left on the table for this Wake Forest team. And I do want to say also, I was going back to Cam Hildreth. I was very impressed with the way that he played. It could not have been, you know, an easy process to bounce back from that Virginia game and the heartbreaking way that that game ended, as has been the case with many Wake Forest games on the road. A lot of things I thought Cam Hildreth did well. Not only did he play an efficient game from the field, three or four shooting, he also had three steals and a block shot and was a plus 21. So finding a way to be efficient and contribute to this offense. And you had guys like Boopy Miller finding their confidence a little bit more on offense again in front of a home crowd, playing an efficient game. Hunter Salas was great. Not too many slip-ups for this Wake Forest team on offense. So yes, I think it took a lot of resilience from Cam Hildreth to come back with a performance like that. And obviously a game that Wake Forest needed to have coming down the stretch. I think it would have not have... It would not bode well for Wake Forest to have been swept by Pitt this year. They get a dominant and commanding win. They keep that fantastic streak at home alive, heading into Duke on Saturday. And everything is still very much out there on the table for this team. I thought Efton Reed, in the minutes that he was out there, played a good game. Again, struggled with foul trouble in some portions of that game. That will be another massive test when Duke comes to town on Saturday is can Efton Reed stay out on the court? He really struggled to do so last time out against the Blue Devils. But overall with this Pitt game, there's not really much to nitpick at for Wake Forest. You you held Pitt for under 60 points. You scored 91 yourself. Pretty much just what you've come to expect out of Wake Forest at home is just rising you know, above and beyond the, the level of play that your opponents have brought. And that was another just textbook example of that last night. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk more about Efton later in regards to the first Duke game and then what's coming up on Saturday. So I'll leave that for a little bit later on in the podcast. But I will say the four fouls, I think two of them were kind of something to do with him just being left out on an island by the guards a little bit. Just some tough fouls, some kind of nitpicky fouls, but they were okay in the context of the game. In other games, you can't afford to have those. But uh, some of that is when 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 Efton just gets left out on an island, and, and 
gets put in tough positions, some of those just end up happening. They shouldn't, but they they sometimes happen. And you can't fully place the blame on him. There are a few more things that I want to talk about in regards to this game. I talked about the ball distribution from Cam Hildreth, but I thought it was a microcosm of a team-wide effort throughout the evening. It's something I talked about with players and Coach Forbes in, in the postgame. So when Wake lost at, at, at Pittsburgh in January, they registered nine assists on 28 baskets. It's not a very good assist rate. They were not moving the ball much. And then Tuesday evening, that rate jumped to 18 assists on 31 makes. So a vastly different indication of ball movement. And it's something that I think is so important for the Wake Forest offense. I think we talk about things that kind of make that that Wake Forest engine go. And the engine that is the Wake Forest offense, I think a lot of it has to do, we talk about it all the time, Ben, is the ball movement. It's a lack of hero ball, and it is getting the ball moving, finding the extra pass, seeing the open court. And we saw that a lot on Tuesday night. Starts with Cam Hildreth, five assists. Efton Reed had three. Hunter Salas had five. Boopy had two. Carr had two. Damari Monsanto had one. Like Wake Forest was getting the ball rotating a lot, and they were making the extra pass. Instead of sometimes taking a shot that was available, but not the best shot, Wake Forest found the best shot. And that's what translates into how you shoot 60% from the field and 50% from three-point range. Sure, some of that is you got to take good shots and the shots have to go down, but they are making those opportunities through ball movement. I think it is so important for the success of the Wake Forest offense and therefore the success of the Demon Deacons as a whole is that ball movement. And we saw that Tuesday night. Yes, truly a very just clean score sheet in general for Wake Forest. I was just glancing at the box score again, not a single player for Wake Forest had a negative plus minus. So all the way up and down the lineup, every single player was having a positive impact while they were out on the court. Obviously that's easy to do when the team wins by 33, but that includes even the the bench players who don't usually get to see a lot of minutes were able to come in at the end of the game and have that positive impact. So really just a clean performance from top to bottom for Wake Forest. And yes, 18 assists in a game for Wake Forest is very, very encouraging. And the team, it was one of those games where you watch the team, you just think, wow, this group is really, really gelling together. And you see that ceiling and that potential and why these predictive metrics have them so highly favored is because this team can truly just come in and outclass you and have, like I you know, said it before, have just been an impossible out on their home court. And Lucas did make the point, though, that the NCAA tournament is not played at home. So that that last piece of the resume is still sort of remaining for Wake Forest. But yeah, from watching that game, I thought Matthew Marsh gave fantastic minutes for Wake Forest last night, came in when Efton Reed was in foul trouble and did truly all you can ask of him. Three of three from the field, seven points, had an and one opportunity, five boards, just the one foul, and drew two fouls of his own. So that is exactly what you need out of a player like Matthew Marsh when you know your your go-to five Efton Reed is struggling to stay out there, stay on the court. Wake Forest just had every guy from top to bottom sort of come in and deliver exactly what was needed of them. And when that happens, this team is is really, really difficult to beat. When you have everyone gelling like that and excelling from from top to bottom, I mean, Wake had four guys at over a plus twenty. 
two more were a plus 18. Hunter Salas was a plus 26, and Boopy Miller was a plus 27, which it was great to see Boopy Miller find his rhythm a little bit more again. But, you know, it's just Wake sort of just exists in this this entirely different level when they play at home. And it's really entertaining to watch. Obviously that's what makes Saturday's Duke game so exciting is because this is going to be Wake Forest is going to be put to the test at home in a way that they have not been put to the test this season. Obviously Wake has had close games against Miami. They played NC state close at home, but this is just an entirely new level of opponent. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to watch this game and see how Wake responds to that challenge and to the chance and at the chance to get, one of these bona fide quad one wins that provides an important sticking point for this Wake Forest resume. I mean, yeah, that win versus Duke would change everything in my book. Um, I think it would change everything. And we'll talk about Duke in a minute, but I just want to cover a few final points from the pit win. I'm glad you brought up Matthew Marsh because it's something I talked about with Coach Forbes post game. I thought, as you said, Ben, I thought it was a pretty flawless 13 minutes from him. I was really excited to see how he did on the the boards. Like I thought he did significantly better on the rebounding side of his game, a little bit more aggressiveness. I mean, we saw a little bit of Efton Reed out of him, where it's the, like the volleyball out when the ball's coming off the rim. And instead of going down for the rebound with two hands, what Efton does a lot is he volleyballs the ball out to the arc again, where the Wake Forest guards are waiting. And we saw that a few times out of Matthew Marsh, Last night, I just thought it was a really good performance out of him in 13 minutes. To be honest, when I was looking at a post game, I thought he played more than 13 minutes. And I mean that in a positive way. Like it felt like Matthew Marsh gave critical minutes for Wake Forest, even though the game was basically over for a long time. It it felt like his performance was one that stood out. There's two more guys I just want to talk about and I'll group them together. Parker Fredrickson and Damari Monsanto. I thought Parker was fantastic. Last night, three or four from the field, all of them from behind the three-point line. So nine points. I thought his three-point shots were also really big in the context of the game because a lot of them came when Wake Forest and Pitt were a lot closer. It wasn't when most of them came down. It wasn't when Wake Forest was kind of in beatdown mode yet. So when you look at that in the broader sense, just how three-pointers can change everything, it's a momentum shifter. And when you have a guy like Parker who can hit them, and I think he's also starting to hit him a little bit more frequently now. That's something you can hang your hat on. And Damari, he went one of four from three-point range. But I feel like he's starting to get his sea legs under him a little bit. Like he's finally, he's seemingly a little bit more confident moving laterally. He's defending better. I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing on the offensive end when it's not the three-point shots. Like he seems a little more willing to move the ball take that again, that extra look, he's, he's passing the ball. He's turning away some three pointers because he's keeping the ball moving on the offensive end. And I think it's just a matter of time before we see Damari finally crack the code on the three point shots. We've seen it in bits and pieces. We saw it last night where he made a really, really deep one. He had, I believe one more rattle out from basically the logo, but I feel like it's right there on the precipice for Damari. And Part of me thinks that it could be Saturday where it finally cracks through and that'd be a hell of a time for that to happen. Um, but it feels like Damari's right there. And so Wake Force has got two killer three-point shooters. Hunter Salas went three to three from three last night as well. He's been really, really good. Just all around, 
great three point shooting, but I just to highlight again, it's just Parker's been Parker's been really good. And I think Damari's right there. And Hunter Salas only had to take eight shots in this game was another sticking point for me is that especially on the road, Wake Forest has had to rely on Hunter Salas to for the entire offense to sort of flow through him. Other guys have really struggled to hit shots. But yesterday, Hunter Salas, yes, he started off well, and he was three of three from beyond the arc, which is great. But he also didn't have to constantly have the ball in his hands and take 15 to 17 shots. And he wasn't you know, faced with the burden of shouldering that entire offense. And you saw, again, what this Wake Forest team can do when everyone is clicking and I don't even want to say the supporting cast, but when you have all of your weapons accepting their role, playing in their role to the best of their ability, this team is much better when Boopy Miller, in addition to being a great distributor and a great ball handler, is able to add that additional threat from the three-point line from driving to the hoop. That's something that he's struggled with at times this season, especially on the road. It was really good to see him get that going again. And you just see that this Wake Forest team is so hard to prepare for when they have all of these different guys. Parker Fredrickson coming into his own throughout the season hit some really tough, you know, he hit three threes last night. One of those in particular, I remember it was kind of at the end of the shot clock, a little bit of a bailout possession. Parker makes a tough catch and an off balance three. And that kid's a freshman. And to see him grow like that over the course of the season has been really, really fun to watch. I think he's going to develop. He's already a really good college basketball player. I think he's going to develop into a, a great one, you know, by the time all is said and done at Wake Forest. And I'm glad you said that about Damari Monsant because I've watched him play enough to where I can sort of just feel him almost finding his rhythm. The shots are right there. He's finding good ones within the flow of the offense. I can tell he's sort of finding that range back. I think it was a good sign to see he hit that one in transition off a tough pull up. And the announcer, which I think was a great word, just said, this is an onslaught from Wake Forest. It's an onslaught. And Pitt really struggled to find ways to stop all of Wake Forest's weapons, which again shows you just exactly what this team can do and what a formidable force that they can be, which is why the metrics like them so much. And why to when you watch this team play, people say this all the time, Wake Forest passes the eye test of being an NCAA tournament team. Performances like that are exactly why people are saying that. When Wake's offensive efficiency is through the roof, when they defend really well, they move the ball. And you can't really point to a single thing throughout the game that they didn't do well. Yeah, the last point, actually, it was the lead to my story Tuesday night was what Wake Forest has really struggled with sometimes has been coming out of halftime. It was something they obviously struggled with against Pitt in Pittsburgh. Not so Tuesday night. And it was something they talked about. Boopy Miller said it was something they talked about at halftime. It's like, look, we've given up some of these halftime leads. We did it against Pitt. Like enough of it. Like it's like they made a conscious decision that they were going to come out with their hair on fire a little bit. And they certainly did. I mean, they pulled the game away and I kind of to what you said to the onslaught part of it. I haven't said this in a long time because it's felt like it's been a while, but that was a sign back to what we saw earlier in the season when it was like, this is how quickly Wake Forest can kill you. Like they can just take you out of the game in a snap. And they did it last night coming out of the locker room. They had an 11-0 run. I think they also had a 9-1 run. They had two big runs in the first few minutes of the half. And at the, from that point on, Pitt was dead in the water. They were gone. Like they had a little bit of a hope 
going into halftime. They were down by 12, right? And that's doable. Not what Wake Forest did to them coming out of the locker room in the first few minutes. From that point forward, the game was over. Uh, so it's what Wake Forest can do to you. If they're shooting the ball well, if they're playing good offense, if they're playing good defense, it was a complete team win last night. And so get back on track. And now you're back on track for another big game. But it's the biggest game in my mind. It is such a big game. And it's Duke. So in Wake Forest last time out against Duke in Durham, it was it was a close game. Connor O'Neill came onto the boots on the ground pod and said that that Duke was beatable, that this game was winnable for Wake Forest. And I have to say, Ben, all throughout, it felt like it was absolutely winnable for Wake Forest. It was right there. Uh, but they just couldn't get it done. I mean, in the first half, it was the shooting. In the second half, it was an inability to get stops. And then it was foul trouble all throughout. I mean, just to to walk through it, and I'll, I'll kick it over to you in a minute. But in the first half, Wake Forest shot 28% from the field. Hunter Salas was really the only guy who could get anything going for the Deeks. And then in the second half, Duke shot 62% on field goals. And if I recall correctly, Wake Forest did not have a single kill, which in Steve Forbes speak is three straight stops in in a row. Uh, Wake Forest didn't have a single one of those in the second half. They just could not get a stop when they needed it. So it was a mix of that. And then you have Efton Reed fouling out he could only play 15 minutes because he had three fouls by halftime he had three fouls i think halfway through the first half and then steve forbes gets him to three at halftime comes out in the first 30 seconds and gets his fourth and from then you're just fighting a losing battle andrew carr also fouled out only 28 minutes that's a lot better than 15 but again it's andrew carr it's a big time player you want to have him more cam hildreth had four Wake Forest was fighting the fouls all night. So when you look at it as a combo of those three things, an inability for a strong portion of the game to score, an inability for another portion of the game to stop Duke, and then fighting with an arm tied behind your back in terms of foul trouble, it was really, really hard to beat Duke. And Wake Forest had it right there on the table, and they couldn't get it done. But what that does tell me, Ben, is that there is absolutely a path to defeating Duke on Saturday. You, I mean, the first part you look at it, it's Wake Forest at home, which is a very, very different Wake Forest basketball team. But in the entire context of what happened in Durham, you just look at those things and how close Wake Forest was. And I've said this. I said this when I was talking about Duke for the first game, and I'll say it again. I don't think this is an elite Duke basketball team. This is not some of the Duke teams we've seen in the past that are just really, really, really good. Like, I think UNC is really, really good. I do not think Duke is UNC. Um, and so I think this is a very winnable game for Wake Forest. Our friend Christian O'Jackson has made it pretty clear that Wake's probably going to be favored in the books in this game. The metrics have them favored. This is one that is right on the table for the Deeks. I said it a few minutes ago, and I think Lucas kind of alluded to it, just about anyone who's talking Wake Forest basketball in the NCAA tournament right now. This one is a game changer if you can get it. I don't think you need it, but – Sure as hell want to get it. Yeah. To your point about whether or not Wake will be favored in this game, I believe, yeah, Ken Palm has Wake dropping this game by a point. So that's not indicative necessarily of what the actual betting line will be. But even so, Ken Palm is predicting that this this game is essentially a toss-up 
between a very good Duke team. I agree with what you said. I don't think Duke is quite on the level of Carolina. That said, I think this Duke team is incredibly well-coached, incredibly disciplined, and they were smart enough last time out against Wake Forest to exploit what the mismatches of that game ended up being. So when I look at Wake Forest last time out against Duke, I think of a couple of different things that really hindered this team's inability to get the job done on the road, even though the pieces and the blueprint were all very much there throughout the first half, most of the second half. But you look at what happened. First of all, the three-point shot truly just did not travel to Durham. Wake went six of 26 from three, and they were getting a lot of good shots was the especially frustrating part. They had a lot of in-rhythm looks within the scope of their offense, just couldn't make them. I believe Steve Forbes said after that game when he was asked about what was going on with a three-point shot, I think he said something like, I don't know, I'm not the one shooting them. You'd have to ask them. So it's just one of those games. It's kind of been the case all year. Wake Forest has struggled to shoot on the road. You had that happening. More specifically, you had the guards outside, aside from Hunter Salas, really struggling to get anything going. Cam Hildreth, one for nine from the field. Boopy Miller, one of seven from the field. So it just it really hurts their offense when those two guys aren't able to provide sort of a supporting scoring role to Hunter Salas's offensive game. And Salas had a fantastic game. He went 10 of 20 and scored 22 points. Was the driving force between Wake Forest staying in that game. But this team is just so much better when they have those additional weapons firing on all, all cylinders. And then the third thing, and you touched on it, was that because of Efton Reed's foul trouble and because of how small Wake Forest was forced to play in that game, they had Damari Monsanto play a lot of four. Mark Mitchell was a matchup nightmare for Wake Forest. He got pretty much everything he wanted offensively all night long. Nine of 14 from the field, 23 points, was one of those players that just Wake really didn't have an answer for the entire game because Andrew Carr was in foul trouble. Efton Reed was in foul trouble. You need those guys out there to provide that presence in the paint and to really lock down the restricted area and to provide that rim protection presence as well. And it was just a tall order for Demario Monsanto to go out there and play the most minutes he had played in a year and try to defend, you know, a veteran savvy group of Duke players on the interior. And in those, but one thing I am excited about for Saturday is that when Efton Reed played in the second half and he went one-on-one several times with Cal Filipowski, Efton Reed got the better of that matchup offensively. He found ways to score, played with a ton of confidence, and you could see Cal Filipowski get visibly frustrated a couple of times out on the court. That is what Efton Reed brings to this team, and it I'm sure it made Wake Forest fans want to pull their hair out watching him pick up his fourth foul 30 seconds into that second half, come back and play later on in the game, and just look so dominant and able to get the better of that matchup. So I think the blueprint is crystal clear of what Wake Forest needs to adjust in from their last time out in order to have the ability to win this game. I think the three-point shooting will take care of itself to some degree. I do not anticipate really in any universe that Wake will go six of 26 from three-point land again. I anticipate them shooting much better than 23% and to have some of those, those looks available and based on how Cam Hildreth and Booby Miller have played at home, I expect those guys to have at least a little bit better of a game as well. Duke's a really good defensive team, and the matchups are going to be difficult. But I expect those things to sort of all naturally, just because Wake is playing at home, this is what they've done all year, to, to be uplifted at least a little bit. But the question is going to be, Efton Reed. Can Efton Reed and Andrew Carr and those guys stay out there and impact the game just by being out there? Because Essex, you and I talked about it. 
how does that how does that Wake Duke game in Durham turn out if Efton Reed gives you 25 minutes? If he's out there for an additional 10 minutes, how does the the outcome of that game change? How does it look different? I think that is a question that needs to be answered in Winston Salem on Saturday in order for Wake to have a chance to get this win. Yeah, Wake absolutely has a chance to answer that question if they have Efton for 25 minutes against Duke at home. We'll see what happens. Um, we we know enough about this Duke team. I think everyone has a good idea of who Duke is at this point. Wake Forest has played them before. You have a very strong starting five lineup. Jared McCain's a really dynamic freshman guard. He's really, really good. Jeremy Roach, the elder statesman of the roster. He's another impact player. Mark Mitchell, of course, was really impressive against Wake Forest and had his way. And then, Kyle Filipowski is flip and flip is flip. He's, he's super impressive. So at this point, you know what Duke is. Most Wake Forest fans know what Duke is. So we don't really need to go too much into that. And we can definitely talk a whole lot about what Ben was kind of getting into a moment ago. And that is the keys to the game. How does Wake Forest go and get that bona fide quad one win? Get one that is an absolute game changer. How does Wake beat Duke at the Joel and really kickstart that final stretch towards the NCAA tournament and put themselves in a very, very good position to, to finally make finally make the dance for the first time since 2017? So, Ben, I'll kick it to you first. How does Wake Forest beat Duke on Saturday in the Joel? Yeah, my first key to the game is going to be something that we've talked about the entire podcast. It's just use the crowd to your advantage. This is going to be a monster crowd in LJVM on Saturday afternoon. I will be sitting in the stands for this game. I won't be in the media credentials. So I, I bought tickets to this game and I tried to buy tickets about six weeks ago. And even then the tickets were very scarce, hard to come by. So I fully expect this to be as big a crowd as wake has had all year, pretty much for a game. So you have to, you have to get the crowd energized and up and moving early in this game to really make things difficult for this Duke team playing on the road. Wake did it against Pitt. They hit early threes. They got off to a hot offensive start. I think you, you just have to, you have, I mean, Wake is going to get up for this game. There's no question about that, but you have to work this crowd into a frenzy early and keep them in a frenzy pretty much the entire game long. Cause that is what's going to give you that extra gear late in the game. When things get difficult, Duke's, I don't expect Duke to, you know, come out and lay an egg in this game. I expect this to be a very closely contested game. So I think the X factor for Wake Forest is exactly what we've been talking about. The students will be great. The Wake Forest faithful will be out in droves. So just use that crowd to your advantage. Absolutely. It was something I talked about on Twitter today. So Mitch Shaw, who's a huge supporter of the Wake Forest basketball program. I absolutely love Mitt. He's the best. Um, He's donating 10,000 tie-dye shirts for this game. Like tie-dye nation is going to be back for this game against Duke. And I was looking at tickets today because a friend was hoping to get here for this game. And I had to say, look, buddy, I don't know what to tell you, but they're a going to be really expensive and B going to be really hard to come by. Like this game's basically going to be sold out. I I think it's probably going to be the fir- the biggest crowd that, that Wake Forest basketball has seen in a long, long time at home. And I think it has the potential to be an absolute madhouse on Saturday in ways I've never seen 
in my I'm in my fourth year covering Wake Forest Sports now. I I'm I'm guessing this is gonna be the craziest I've ever seen it. So as you said, Ben, that crowd is going to be so, so important. It's also gonna be important as having your in my book, and I've said it before, your second most impactful player out on the court. You alluded to it, Ben. Efton is so, so important. He kind of got the good matchup on flip on offense. Like he was getting it going. He was one of two Wake Forest players to finish the game against Duke with a positive plus minus. The other was Parker Fredrickson. You have Efton for 25 minutes as opposed to 15. Possibly a different game result in Durham. And I I, I do believe that. It possibly could have been, it flipped the game. And so Wake Forest having him, him being aggressive, but restrained at the same time, especially on the defensive end is important. I would say aggressive on offense, taking it to flip, getting it on the inside. But if I were Duke, after what happened in Durham, I'd go straight at Efton Reed when you're on offense. Um, And so that's going to mean that Efton's really going to have to have some discipline on the defensive end because Wake Forest cannot afford, as good as Matthew Marsh has been, props to Matthew Marsh. You cannot have, you got to have Efton Reed in this game. He is so, so important to stop one of the best big men in the country in flip. And at the same time, just as important in my mind, is having Andrew Carr as well. Like the big men are so pivotal in this game for Wake Forest. Andrew Carr against a really, really good four in Mark Mark Mitchell. As we said, Mark Mitchell eight against Wake Forest in Durham because Andrew Carr got into foul trouble. And also he just eight because he's Mark Mitchell. He's a really, really good basketball player. So he's going to get his due against Andrew Carr to a certain extent. But having Andrew Carr out there to limit that is really important. And the same applies to Efton for stopping flip and for for getting some some good looks on the offensive end. Also, I think it's just playing within yourself. Like Cam Hildreth played within himself against Pitt and had a really, really good game. Everybody played within themselves. Efton was making good decisions on the offensive end. Andrew Carr got some good looks. Hunter Salas didn't have to take a ton of shots, but was really, really effective. Boopy Miller was getting good looks. The team didn't turn it over a lot. They played really, really strong defense all around a complete team win. And that's what is it's going to take for Wake Forest to beat Duke on Saturday. It's going to take a complete team effort. And so I think for them, playing within themselves is very, very critical because that's when Wake Forest is at their best, when they're ball distributing, when they're playing sound defense, when they're making the right decisions, when they are responsible and and restrained and disciplined. It's when Wake Forest is a really, really lethal team. You've seen it. And so hopefully for them, they can put that together at home. And the final one I have is at least it's it's been happening at home but it did not happen in Durham. The shots have just got to fall. And some of that is Wake Forest doing it themselves. Some of that is just how the, the wind blows. Like you got to just have to beat Duke. You got, you can't shoot what Wake Forest shot in Durham. And so some of that is good shot selection. Kind of what I was referring to earlier with some discipline and playing within yourself, but the shot selection is key. Looking for the extra pass, the higher percentage shots is big. And then you just got to get the shots to go. And if Wake Forest can get the shots to go, if they can shoot the way they did against Pitt, you have to feel pretty good about their chances on Saturday. Agreed. There, I don't think there's any way to beat this Duke team if you shoot as poorly as you did in Durham. And I think this Wake Forest team's, one of their greatest strengths is their ability to light up the scoreboard and fill up the stat sheet. So I think that absolutely has to happen. For my, for my last key, 
Essex is something you touched on earlier. I I just feel like for Wake Forest to beat this Duke team with how good Duke has been, there's going to need to be some sort of X factor. Someone that goes above and beyond and does something extraordinary in order to get away with this win. And I think that one of the keys to doing this and one of the players that has a great opportunity to do this is Damari Monsanto, as we've been talking about. I think that Damari has sort of been getting his feel for the, for the game again. He's been shown flashes. He's finding good in rhythm looks. They just haven't fallen yet with the consistency that we're used to from him. Obviously he's had great shooting performances, great spurts where he's hit a couple in a row. He did it at UNC, obviously in his first game back, he was great. But this is this is the moment for this Wake Forest season. This is the time where you can get that win that erases a lot of the doubt in people's minds. And I expect Amari Monsanto to be ready to go for this one, to play a big role off the bench, to look for his shot early and often. And I think that if he can shoot to the level that we've seen him shoot before and just provide such a matchup nightmare for these opposing teams... I think that is the extra jolt that could get Wake Forest over the hump in this game. As if Demari Monsanto can give you three, four, five threes in the way that we're just accustomed to seeing from him. And maybe this is when we see see this performance and say, hey, Demari Monsanto is all the way back. He is all the way back from this injury. The idea of Demari Monsanto being all the way back just makes me smile. Um, Demari is Demari's awesome. He's, he's a fun guy. I, I love him. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something I was talking about earlier, right, Ben? Like, I felt like he's right about to crack through that ceiling. And it was almost like I was thinking about it at the pit game. I, I was thinking about it at the pit game. It's like, God, I think Damari might do something against Duke. Like, it feels like it's right there. And so I totally agree with you. Wake Forest does need that X factor against Duke. It, it might be Hunter Salas. It might be somebody else. But I just I feel like this could be this could be the Damari game. I remember what Damari did two years ago when Wake Forest absolutely trounced UNC at home. The UNC team that went on to come very, very close to winning the national championship against Kansas. Damari scored three three-pointers in a row to trigger a UNC timeout, and the Joel absolutely erupted. I'll never forget it because I was in the crowd that night. Um you have Damari shoot like that. If you can do that at Duke, put up nine straight points back to back to back threes and put Duke on their heels a little bit. It's a game changer. And I think Damari's right there. So having him do something like that would be so huge. Damari is such a good shooter. The shots just haven't been quite there yet. At some point, I feel like he's just got to break through that ceiling and it might be against Duke. And now the only thing left to do here on the boots on the ground pod it's prediction time. Wake Forest versus Duke, Saturday, 2 p.m. on ESPN. Ben, I'll give you the first crack at it. Essex, you and I have talked a lot about the benefit of the doubt for Wake Forest. When it comes to Wake Forest on the road, they no longer have the benefit of the doubt, at least in my eyes, and I'm pretty sure in your eyes. They haven't done enough to earn the benefit of the doubt back. At home, however... They've done absolutely nothing to take the benefit of that doubt away. They've answered every challenge they've been faced with at home. Obviously, this will be their biggest test yet, but they responded really well against a Miami team early in the year at home. Their quad one, their lone quad one win at this time against Florida came at home. They've been 
perfect, flawless at home. They're the only team in the conference who hasn't lost at home. So I have no reason right now to pick against Wake Forest in this game. Ken Palm has it as essentially a toss-up, but having watched just about every minute of this team this year, it is truly remarkable how different and how energetic and the extra gear that they have been able to find at home. And I think the added implications of this game, that this is not an early season game. This is a game where you're playing to erase the doubt and cement yourselves in the conversation for an NCAA tournament bid for the first time since 2017. So I think that this Wake Forest team will be up. This game will be have a ton of attention around it. It's a, a critical game for ACC ramifications, NCAA tournament ramifications. Whatever value you want to assign to this game, it's there pretty much. And I think Wake Forest answers the call. I think it's going to be close. I think it'll be a really, really fun game to watch. I got Wake Forest by 483.79. I promise we didn't discuss this before we hopped onto the podcast because Ben nearly word for word said what I'm going to write for my Wake Forest Duke preview on Blogger So Dear. It's about the benefit of the doubt. Wake Forest has not yet earned it on the road. They have absolutely learned it on at home. And so that's kind of the factor for me. So I'll talk about another factor in my prediction to go along with that Wake Forest definitely has my benefit of the doubt at home. The second part of that is I think Wake Forest should have beaten Duke and Durham. I think it was an absolutely a coulda, shoulda, woulda kind of game. Like I think a few different things go Wake Forest way. They win that game. And so I don't, Duke didn't play that well either. So it's not like Duke was at their best and Wake Forest almost took them down anyways. So I don't want to have a revisionist history on that and, and change things. But what I was thinking in that game and after that game is take this game to Winston and I really think Wake can win. Like, I think it's a very, very good Wake Forest team. They are thrilling at home and they can, again, mess you up really, really fast. And based on the way that Wake Forest kept it close in Durham, what I think Duke is this year and the magnitude of this game and combine that with, as we said, the benefit of the doubt, I cannot pick against Wake Forest. I really do. And this is not like, this isn't just some Wake Forest pod saying, hey, I think Wake's going to win on Saturday because it's Wake. I actually think Wake is going to win on Saturday. I think they should have won in Durham a few weeks ago. I think they're going to flip the script and get it right on Saturday against Duke, get themselves that bona fide quad one win and get themselves in position to be in position to make that run for the NCAA tournament and get back to March Madness. I'm going to take Wake Forest 83 to 76. Wake Forest versus Duke. ESPN at 2 o'clock on Saturday. We'll be there with all the coverage. I'll be in press row and Ben will be having a heck of time in the crowd. That's all for us from the Boots on the Ground pod alongside Ben Conroy. I am Essex Thayer. See you all soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.